0: Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
1: I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Only bad witches are ugly. Only bad witches
2: are ugly. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too.
0: Lions and tigers and bears, oh my!
3: Ding dong, the witch is dead.
0: Welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. I'm Laura East. And I'm Liz Plumpton. Each episode takes a look at a different aspect of the wonderful world of amateur theatre and features an amateur theatre maker talking about their theatrical life, theatrical loves and the times when they've died on stage. Our backstage pass holder, John O'Neill, will also take us behind the scenes at the Crescent Theatre, Birmingham to discover more about what goes into making a great amateur production. Today's
2: episode is all about following the yellow brick road through the history of the novels, films and stage versions of The Wizard of Oz. We'll be talking to Jackie Blackwood about her life and loves in amateur theatre. Jackie is currently a production assistant on the Crescent Theatre's forthcoming production of The Wizard of Oz, and she'll be sharing some of the secrets of the backstage work that goes into weaving the on-stage magic.
0: What's your favourite line from The Wizard of Oz? Follow the yellow brick road.
4: I don't have a brain, you see, only a straw, so I don't have to mind to make up. Let's try that one again. (laughs) Well, I haven't got a brain, you see, only straw, so I haven't got a mind to make up.
3: Follow the yellow brick road.
0: Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You've always had the power, my dear. You
4: just had to learn it for yourself. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my! I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too.
2: I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. (laughs) Laura's been getting her geek on and delving into the history of one of the most iconic musicals of all time. I think, really, The Wizard of Oz is something most of us think we know. Judy Garland, Ruby Slippers, 1939 MGM movie. But, as Laura's been finding out, there's a lot more to it than that. So. The Wizard of Oz, Laura. Where did it all begin?
0: The Wizard of Oz has a relationship with musical theatre that's now more than 100 years old. The original children's book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by Lyman Frank Baum, was published in 1900. Something about its heroes and their adventures captured the hearts and imaginations of children and grown-ups across America and around the world. In the 120 years or so since it was published, the story's never been out of print, It's been adapted for film, animation and television over 40 times since 1910, into comic books and games, and multiple times for the stage, beginning in 1902. The book's heroes are the sparky young girl from Kansas, Dorothy, her little black dog Toto, and their new friends from the land of Oz, the Scarecrow, the Tin Woodsman and the Cowardly Lion, who accompany Dorothy on her quest to return home, in the hope of getting gifts from the great and powerful Wizard of Oz themselves. Oz is a mystical, magical land, more wonderful and colourful than Kansas, and also more dangerous, populated by talking animals and trees, deadly flowers, good and wicked witches, powerful wizards, and mysterious beasts and creatures like the Hammerheads, people made of China, winged monkeys and Kaleedas, half tigers, half bears, oh my.
2: So the story actually started as a series of books. How did it go from being essentially a children's
0: story to a stage show? People quickly realised the story's potential for performance. Just two years after publishing his book, L. Frank Baum & Co. adapted it for the stage as the musical comedy extravaganza The Wizard of Oz. It was popular enough to move to Broadway the following year, where it ran for nearly 300 performances. There'd be many things about the original show we'd find strange or unfamiliar. For a start, musical theatre as we know it wasn't quite fully formed then. Music, song and dance belong to the history of theatre as far back as the very beginnings of Western theatre in ancient Greece, but the musical as we know it today only really started to grow around the 1800s, when shows began to pull together influences from light opera and weave them together with the traditions of vaudeville or music hall. Musical theatre wouldn't really become what we recognise as musical theatre today until the 1920s, when audiences would start to see shows like Showboat, which would have a story, dramatic themes and characters, and songs and scenes that were integrated into the plot. The 1902 adaptation of The Wizard of Oz was more of a spectacular show with music, in the style of music hall or variety shows, but with a continuous story. Most of the music has been forgotten now. Songs weren't necessarily important to the plot and could be swapped in and out of the show easily for more popular ones. We know about at least 60 songs that belonged to the show at one time or another. Besides the music, the script was also full of topical comedy, puns and slapstick, and other popular entertainments that would draw the crowds. The Munchkins were played by chorus girls in blue. A teenage Dorothy gets a love interest, and so does the Tin Man. More characters and intrigues are added to the plot, including the lovesick Sir Dashimov-Daily and the dastardly Sir Wiley-Guile. And Dorothy's dog Toto is replaced by Imogen, the cow. The show was also likely to have been around four hours long, before the age of the cast recording. Shows like these would be chock-full of songs and encores, giving audiences their money's worth of memorable entertainment, as many people might only ever get to see the show once in a lifetime. This first theatrical adaptation of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was hugely popular in the USA and gave rock star celebrity status to the Scarecrow and Tin Man actors, the comic duo of Fred Stone and David C. Montgomery. Four hours long? Wow. The
2: 1939 film is so iconic in popular culture, 80-odd years later, that it's amazing to think that there was a stage show that was just as popular in its
0: own way in the first half of the 20th century. Until and beyond 1939, they were still so well and fondly remembered from The Wizard of Oz that audiences begged for the rubber-limbed Fred Stone to return as the Scarecrow practically every time a new film adaptation was announced. Although Fred Stone was in his 60s by the time the MGM musical reached cinemas, David Montgomery, the original Tin Man, had died unexpectedly in 1917. The 1902 musical had an influence on Oz's future. It was popular enough that L. Frank Baum would go on to write the first of his 14 sequels two years later, The Marvellous Land of Oz. In the original story of The Wizard of Oz, hundreds of tiny mice rescue our heroes from the deadly poppy field. But as this was a bit difficult to realise on stage in 1902, it was replaced by A Snowstorm, which survived the 1939 movie adaptation. The author continued to write books, but also made various attempts to recapture the theatrical successes of The Wizard of Oz, but none of these ever matched the phenomenon of the 1902 production for popularity or box office. In later 1910s, people started to turn their attention to the growing world of silent film instead. Baum himself was inspired by the potential for illusion in film that matched his fantasy universe, and started his own Oz Film Company. At least five silent film adaptations, some looser than others, of The Wizard of Oz and its sequels were made, some by Baum's own new company, Advertised for the films capitalised on the popularity of the original musical play, reminding audiences of their favourite characters, actors, moments and plot hooks, even if they didn't actually appear in the film. Actors from the 1902 show were often rumoured to be signing up for these new movies, but it never came to be. By 1914, the superstar Scarecrow and Tin Man actors were back on Broadway in a new, unrelated show. By 1916, the Oz Film Manufacturing Company had closed down. In 1919, The Wizard of Oz author L. Frank Baum passed away at the age of 62. But The Wizard of Oz still inspired theatre writers. In 1923, Elizabeth Fuller Goodspeed turned The Wizard of Oz into a play script which was first performed by the Junior League of Chicago. She designed the script for community groups and children's theatre, leaving out fixed musical numbers or difficult special effects. So when Samuel French published it in 1928... It became a popular show for amateur groups and was performed by junior league clubs all over the USA. People continued to adapt to the world of Oz, including a rather terrible silent movie with Oliver Hardy as the Tin Man that drew scathing comparisons to the stage show and original books, and several radio series which would lift lines, music cues and characterizations from the 1902 musical. Before 1939 there also followed another silent film and a short Technicolor animated film, two large-scale marionette shows drew theatre audiences, and another musical toured the east coast of the USA for two years.
2: It's incredible that this story was so popular and had such longevity on stage and screen before Judy Garland ever tried on those ruby slippers. So how did the 1939 film come about when there'd already been so many previous screen versions?
0: It could so nearly have not have happened. It took six years, four directors, millions of dollars, And finally, the success of Walt Disney's fairy tale musical colour cartoon, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, to get made. This 1939 film version of The Wizard of Oz is so firmly fixed in the brains of audiences that some of the things it introduced are now some of the most recognisable things about The Wizard of Oz and beyond. It gave us ruby slippers and green-faced witches, classic songs, a Technicolor Oz just over the rainbow and a dream away. Amateur theatres can now bring this story back to audiences around the world.
2: And now we are delighted to welcome this month's guest to the podcast, that is Jackie Blackwood. Jackie is a stalwart of the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and is also known quite widely um, through her work with the LTG um, across amateur theatres across the country, I think it's probably fair to say. So welcome, Jackie, and thank you very much for agreeing to come on. Thank you. Tell us about your first love.
5: Um, I think it would have been around about the time when I Joined the theatre back in 1979, believe it or not, and I think the first few, couple of things I really got involved with were Chicago and Cabaret. They, they were my two so of my started real favourites, so started with musicals, straight into musicals, uh, pretty much one after the other. I think I got my interest from theatre really through school, where I had a really, really good drama teacher and a really, really good dance teacher who... who Focused on that and pushed it through. And also encouragement from mum and dad, really. Mum in particular, she was very into us going to dance classes and and that's really how it all started for me.
2: So in those first um, shows that you mentioned, were you on stage?
5: I was on stage. I was on stage quite a lot when I first joined. Pretty much went, as you did in those days, from show to show to show. I can't think of any um, straight acting plays where I had much to say. It was pretty much all musical, Mm -hmm. musical stuff. And
2: were you, so were you singing and dancing? Singing and dancing, yes. What do you think it was about amateur theatre and I suppose about this theatre, The Crescent, that really kind of captured your imagination and and hooked you in? Yeah,
5: I think it's the theatre, it's the company, I think, because so many people have been through the theatre in my time that I've been here. You do make um, a lot of friends I seem to recall when we had, dare I say it, an Ofsted inspection and the school was put into special measures. I actually came into the theatre on that night because I needed to be with lots of different people. It's that kind of feeling of of the friendships that you you gauge and, and getting to know people. I think, and everybody works really hard, so that's why I'm still here. Thank you. So what's been the love of your theatrical life? Hmm, that's a tricky one. I actually do, most of the time, love being a PA. That's probably where I stuck once I changed to the other side, as we call it. Um, I think the love has got to be all the musical element, really. That, mm-hmm. That's where I really, really, really enjoy things.
2: Is um, there a particular musical that you've either been in or been um, a production assistant on that you've really, you know, that's really stuck with you?
5: Um, well, like I said, Cabaret in Chicago are the ones that stuck with me. Parade was probably the most recent one that I, that I really, really did really just love that one, I thought that was just super, the way it all came together. Um, it's all musicals for me, really and truly, deep down. Chicago, um, I think I played one of the, uh, the Kit Kat girls, the six girls in the jail, uh, June it was, so I was the one who ran into his knife ten times or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we did a, a promotion up at Winston Green Prison, which was... <laughs> Taking Don't you photo- think you'd
2: be allowed to do that
5: now. <laughs> taking photos outside. That was quite, and you know, in my naivety in those days, I thought, oh, this is great. We're going out, on, you know, doing promotional stuff. And it was it was quite, uh, looking back, thinking, oh, my God. There we were, scantily clad in a... In a
2: <laughs> outside of prison.
5: Outside of prison with cars going past and horns beeping, the prison guards coming out and people yelling at us through windows and all sorts. You just think, what are we doing? But at the time, it was just fantastic. I love it.
2: Tell us about the one that got away.
5: Don't actually think I can think of any, actually, because I seem to have got myself involved in everything that I wanted to do, either by being in it or by being PA, so I don't actually think there was ever anything that I can think of where I thought, "Oh, I'd love to be in that production.
2: Anything you'd still love to do that we, you know, you've not done yet, whether that's backstage or on stage?
5: Yes, is there something? carousel, showboat... Can't think that, no nothing that springs to mind immediately. Which I think, oh, we really ought to do mm. that. Um, when a show gets announced for the season, I sometimes think, oh yeah, that would be great. And other times I just think, mm, don't know it. Or so it, it just depends what comes around. I don't think there's anything, no burning desire anymore really to do anything, any one specific.
2: You wouldn't thing. be in the chorus of Carousel if we did it.
5: I could well be if I'm tempted right. by the musical okay. director.
2: <laughs> great. Tell us about a time when you died on stage. <laughs>
5: Um, I can't think of a time where I died on stage, but I can I can tell you about a time where I died just before I came on stage, which was in The Vortex. Noel Coward. Noel Coward, Noel yes, player, yeah. which uh, Robert Ball directed. I had to come on stage, sweep onto stage, and just nanoseconds before I was due to go on, I turned to the stage manager in an absolute panic and said, what's my line? What's my line? She looked at me and she went, Hello? <laughs> So that's how bad it was, and even when I was walking on stage, I was having a real panic thinking, what, what do I have to say? What do I have to say? What do I have to say? Oh, oh, hello, darling. That was all it was, but I really had a total mental all, block. Yeah, yeah but I've never had an actual time uh, where I've actually died on stage, but that's probably because I've not been in parts where I've had a lot to say, so I could just about cope with hello, darling, obviously.
2: Bad one to get a prompt on. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: oh.
2: oh, great. So, um As well as, you know, being a a member of the Crescent Theatre, you've also been involved with the Little Theatre Guild. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that?
5: Um, Yeah, we uh, look after quite a few theatres across the UK. You're going to ask me how many and I can't tell you offhand. And if they listen to this, they're going to be really annoyed. Because i (laughs) have been thinking, why doesn't she know that? (laughs) It's quite a few. Um, It is all about amateur theatre. We support as much as we can. And it's little theatres. So it can be, you know, a theatre with an audience size of 10 right up to us or 500 or more. Um, we put together something what we call grey papers, which is information gathering, and we pass on information as much as we can. We have a national liaison officer, he's been working very hard through this pandemic, I'll tell you, who attends lots of meetings and things on our behalf. So It's, it's really a support group in lots of ways.
2: Um, through your work with the LTG, what would you say have been the challenges for amateur theatres of the pandemic? It feels like the media conversation is focused understandably on the professional world of the arts and the huge and you know let's be honest devastating impact that Covid has had but what have been the challenges and the the issues for amateur theatres that you've come across? I
5: just think survival and some of the the very small theatres have just uh, basically had to shut their doors because there's nothing to do Um, getting the funding those that could get it we were very lucky in that respect it was absolutely crucial Um, trying to encourage their audiences to come back um, same as we are I guess and also their members um, a lot of the little theatres do have members from sort of the older generation I'd say, senior citizens who were not so keen to return so that's a big issue for quite a few of the theatres mm-hmm. so it is just the fact it was trying to open their doors and keep going
2: The Little Theatre Guild's been a great source of support and are pulling together as much as much guidance can. at short notice often Definitely. when we were going yeah. through different stages Absolutely. of lockdown Absolutely.
5: Um, and a great source to go to if you need to answer yeah. need some questions answered.
2: Our backstage passholder, John O'Neill, has been speaking to some of the team who are currently working on bringing the Crescent Theatre's production of The Wizard of Oz to the stage. He's not in Kansas anymore. John, where are you?
3: Thanks Liz and Laura. No, this is definitely not Kansas, nor the magical world of Oz. But I have come to a part of the theatre that deals with illusions. In this case, The art of stage lighting, I've found my way to the technical control room here at the Crescent Theatre. The control room is a confined nest of a place where wires weave in and out of electrical stage control technology. LED lights blink and somehow the real world seems very, very far away. That sound is the sound of dexterous fingers navigating across the buttons of the lighting control desk. James, I know you're busy, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but could I just take a few minutes of your time for our podcast audience? You can
1: indeed, yes.
3: Could you tell us who you are and what your role is in the Wizard of Oz production team?
1: So I'm James Booth and I am the lighting designer for the Wizard of Oz. So, in
3: The Wizard of Oz, James, Dorothy follows the yellow brick road. What I'd like to do is follow Stage Lighting's yellowy-orange-copper-metal road to take the journey electricity takes through the theatre before its illusionist-like metamorphosis into the blinding shafts of light that bring the stage to life. Will you indulge me and our listeners, and where will we go to find the source of the copper brick road. I can indeed. I think we should probably start in the
1: intake room.
3: So, we've walked down a staircase, through a few corridors, through a few doors, and now we've opened a door that says on the front, um, and we're we're in the basement, which is why it echoes, and it says danger, 415 volts, no access, Crescent Theatre personnel only. I've never been in this room before. It's quite exciting. It's a concrete bunker of a room. James, can you tell us
1: where we are? So we're in the intake room. So this is actually under the stage left wing. And we've got the main power source coming in, which is like a big trunk cable. Wow, that's a thick cable. So I'd say that's
3: what, two inches in
1: diameter.
3: I'm not going to touch it in case it's
1: the end for me, but yeah. That comes in, and then that spreads into our main distribution boards. And if you hear in the background, there is like a, a hum, yeah, and that's the power. If all the stage lighting was on, and the studio was on, and everything was in the bar, this room would be deafeningly loud the buzz of all the electricity. Really? And it's like a tree trunk. It comes in and then spreads off, and it goes to all the different locations in the building to separate distribution boards, or to the main house lighting, or the studio lighting. And there is some health and safety guidance that tells us what to do
3: if somebody has an electric shock. <laughs> so that's useful, I suppose. But Indeed. we've never had to
1: use that, have we? No, no, no. Good. Right, and where
3: is next on our copper brick,
1: yellow brick road? So we probably go to the dimmer room next, okay. which is at the other end of the building at the top. Right, let's go. So we're in the dimmer room the dimmer now. dimmer room, yeah. Uh, this is where all the power for the main house lighting is fed from and again there is a bit of a buzz in the background that you may be able to hear the way it kind of works is so you've got two types of lantern and light ones that dim like you've got a dimmer at your home and ones that need permanent power and this room is full of all the dimmers right. that uh, make the lights go up and down and the if a lights full-on the buzz stops when it's midway through it buzzes more
3: right so the lower the dim, the lower the light intensity, the higher the sound, of yeah. the buzz. Right. And, and we're just looking at the, what are these called? The dimmer packs, are they? Or they racks? are, yes. Dimmer racks. Dimmer racks, yeah. So it's strand lighting and each dimmer rack is about a metre square, um, quite thin, but a metre square on the wall. At the top,
1: we've got a little electrical LED. What does that do? So that's where you set channel numbers. Right. So back in the old days of lighting, you'd have had a room full of big levers. Yeah. And when someone queued them, they would pull the levers up and down to change the lighting. We've modernised a lot since then. And now the dimmer packs talk to a desk downstairs in the control room. And these dimmer packs basically do that levering for you. But what you do is you set each dimmer channel a specific value which the desk then tells it, so each one of these has its own individual number running from 1 to 120, and that basically sets the numbering system. Okay, so
3: you allocate a channel number. Yeah. Where are we off to next? Uh, Probably the control room. Right, back to the control room. So, James, here we are, back in the control room, back where it all started, and this is the final part of our journey on the Copper Brick Road. So, what's happening
1: now? So lanterns around the space are all plugged into the individual channel numbers that corresponds to the dimmers in the dimmer room and then from here on the lighting desk i can type numbers in and wind them up and right. then turn them on and off
3: okay so if you want to control a particular light you work out what number channel that light is plugged into and then you press the channel on the board yeah in front of you um and then decide how bright it wants to be yeah right
1: and with most lanterns that is pretty much all you can do from here as technology has improved you've got moving lights and leds and smoke machines and that and then the desk offers you other opportunities like you can change the colour or put uh, a gobo which is a like thing that puts shadows and in front of lights to make different shapes or you could make it a different shape generally, so it's rather than just a round blob, it's a square or rectangle. And
3: if you were using moving lights, because they can point in more than one direction and be more than one colour and have different focus, does that mean you're using less lights overall? Does it make it
1: easier, or does it just give you more options? So, probably it gives us more options. If we had an entire rig made up of moving lights, then I would use less, but at the moment with only a couple that would just enhance the production and makes it more interesting than just lights that go on and off.
3: And lights obviously have changed as the years have rolled on. So they were tungsten filaments, were they? Um, and that's changing to LEDs um, and now we've got moving lights. Are there any different kinds of illumination technologies?
1: Um, yes, so original moving lights had a different type of lamp, which the name escapes me, which it's always on. So the sort of initial moving lights, rather than when you, when you see a light going on and off, rather than actually doing that, it's just got shutters that close in front and as they sort of cross over, that makes the light dimmer or brighter. Nowadays they're LED so you can control the intensity as well. But we still use uh, tungsten or incandescent lights, and so do a lot of theatres. They are still out there, because modern modern LED uh, fixtures are quite expensive.
3: Right. And do LED fixtures use different amounts of electricity? Do you have to sort of fuse the board up differently or anything like that?
1: So they do. So the way that the system works for incandescent lights, as I've explained with you follow the the chain and you type the channel and it plugs into a dimmer, for those you just need normal power and then you have a separate control cable that runs to the lighting desk which then controls the features so the light is always on and then the computer inside the light tells it what you're doing. Um, it uses less power so it will save on our electricity bill uh, but to buy the lights initially is a lot more expensive. As, as the years move on and more people make it then the price will come down but the decent lights they are quite expensive. And getting back to our
3: more general questions, so that's the end of our copper brick road, which was very interesting. Um, getting back to our original questions for the podcast audience, the next question I've got for you is, more generally when it comes to lighting design, how much information do you need to start lighting
1: a show? So we are at end of July, and it starts end of September. So we're about two months away. This is normally when the process starts for lighting. So the first thing I tend to do is get a set design and then that starts giving you the information of like, right, this is what I'm actually going to have to light. Then I'll have a meeting with the director to talk about what their vision for the show is and then potentially the costume design as well. So you make sure you can actually see the costumes. And once those have all taken place, I can then start working out what I'm going to do in terms of lighting and what lanterns I'm going to use, if I'm going to use any moving lights, how many cues I'm going to have in the show, etc. So the set design comes first?
3: Yeah. I'm guessing that bringing your artistic lighting vision for The Wizard of Oz into reality will take time and work. What are the main phases of this work? How long does it take and how many people
1: are involved So, that's a very good question. Um, I would start normally by talking to the director. Then I would come to watch a run-through or two. Uh, From that, I would then make a note of lighting changes and cues that I would see as being in the show. I would then talk them through with the director, check they're happy with the vision I'm going with and it's in line with their vision. Then I will make a lighting plan, which I will draw up, working on where I'm going to put the lights to achieve the effects that I want to create. Following that, we then plan for the get-in. So then I would um, try and get a team together to help rig it. So we'll have a schedule from the production manager about when we're getting into the space and our time slot. And for the main house, normally we're in first because we have to fly the lighting bars in over stage, adjust the rig accordingly to match the plan, then we can fly that out. Then set would normally follow. And then they start putting the set up under the lights. We will then move on to do front of house lighting. And 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 when we're
3: talking about, just for the audience, when we're talking about flying the lighting bars in, there's no drones or anything like that involved. It's bars on ropes up in the the ceiling part of the stage, I suppose. um, And those ropes get pulled down. And the bars then lower down to stage level and the lights get latched onto the bars.
1: Yes, and it's all counterbalanced as well, so you're not hauling it with your own weight. It's it's very safe.
3: Yeah. And so for main house, which is a big space, how many um, riggers, are they called riggers? Yes. How many lighting riggers would you need to attach all the lights onto those bars?
1: So depending on the, the complexity of your lighting design, there is what we call a standard rig, which is to cover normal basic requirements of a show and for the people that come and use the space in between the big productions. So some shows wouldn't require much tweaking at all because that standard rig covers most bases. Something like a musical would be quite complicated so you'd probably need three or four people and there's four lighting bars over the stage As standard. Again if it's a more complicated show you might need to turn some of the standard bars which we normally use for scenery into additional lighting bars by adding power to them and so on. And that can take a couple of hours to do all that. If you're really organised, you might also put colour in front of the, the lights uh to save time at the focusing stage. Um Not everyone's that organised, sadly. Right.
3: So the the first stage of actually getting the lights onto the bar is the rigging stage. Yeah. Um And then following on from that is the focusing stage, yeah. is that right?
1: So normally in that schedule, you have the morning for lighting, on the stage, then you move and do all the front of house and the sides and the bits where the set isn't, all the secret locations, um, then the set people will probably go away in the evening. Then you then can come along and focus. Right. So that's where you point all the lights in the right direction or put colours in them or put gobos. So in the
3: meantime, before you can do that, the set the set builders have to come in, build the set. So you've, you've rigged your lights, you've strung them back up into the fly area of main house, Then you have to vacate, and the the set builders come in, build the set, and then later on during the same day, because all this has to be turned around in, what, a 24-hour period? Pretty much, yes. Yes, it has to be all done quickly.
1: Um, Then you start the focusing phase. Yes, so that can can take several hours depending on how many lanterns you've got. If you had a lot of moving lights, then it wouldn't take any time at all because you don't need to actually focus anything because you do that all from the desk. when When we
3: say focus, we're talking about going up a ladder and moving a light physically, yeah. pointing it so it shines into the right place. The beam is the right width, and it's the right colour. Yes. But it's, it's definitely a specialism. I mean, all the different stages you've described to us, it's, it's definitely... The, there's, there's a fair bit to learn to help a, a lighting designer. Oh, yes. Their first piece.
1: It's quite good for people who, who can't commit to a long period so, for example, if you're doing costumes or set, you'll be building the set or making the costume for weeks and weeks and weeks in advance. And then once the show's on, then you can kind of relax until something breaks and you've got to go and fix it. Whereas lighting, you can't really do that much prep because you don't get access to the space to hang the lights until the day of the get in. And then again, you've got to get it all done, really, by the time the dress rehearsal. So you've only got like three or four days and that's where you've got to commit the time rather than over a period. Like even the actors have to commit three rehearsals a week for eight weeks, plus the run of the show. So the people who have difficulty time-wise, lighting is a good section for them.
3: James, that's been so fascinating, I can't even begin to tell you. Thank you so much and good luck with your lighting for The Wizard of Oz. And I hope as many of our podcast listeners as possible get to see the final show here at the Crescent Theatre. Thank you, James.
1: Thank you.
2: Earlier, we heard how The Wizard of Oz evolved from a book by L. Frank Baum to that iconic 1939
0: film. But that's far from the end of the story. The world of Oz has proved endlessly irresistible to film, television and theatre. Its appeal is timeless. In 1942, the St. Louis Municipal Opera, known as The Mooney, commissioned a stage adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. It was based on L. Frank Baum's 1900 book, and used the songs by Harold Arlen and E.Y. Harburg from the 1939 movie. This was followed by a 30-minute television adaptation with Puppets in 1950, which was telecast live by American station NBC. In the same year, Lux Radio Theatre produced a radio version of the story, starring Judy Garland in her original screen role. Didn't somebody try to make a sequel? In 1985, Walt Disney Pictures released Return to Oz, which was an unofficial sequel to MGM's 1939 film. Return to Oz is based on Baum's early 20th century Oz novels, mainly The Marvelous Land of Oz from 1904 and Ozma of Oz from 1907. In the plot, Dorothy returns to the Land of Oz to find it's been conquered by the Gnome King, and she must restore it with her new friends, Bellina, TikTok, Jack Pumpkinhead, the Gump, and Princess Ozma. The Ruby Slippers were created by MGM specifically for the 1939 film to replace the Silver Shoes of the original stories on Technicolor and as the slippers were still MGM's intellectual property, Disney paid a fee to use them in Return to Oz. This sequel performed poorly at the box office, grossing $11.1 million in the United States on a $28 million budget, and received mixed reviews, with critics praising the effects and performances, but criticising the dark content and twisted visuals. However, it performed well outside the US, and has since acquired a cult following.
2: What about the stage version, which the Crescent Theatre are currently
0: producing? How did that come about? Looking to recreate the 1939 film on stage more closely, the Royal Shakespeare Company adapted the film's screenplay for their 1987 Christmas show, also using the songs from the film. According to Royal Shakespeare Company director Ian Judge, the company's 1987 adaptation came about when Terry Hans, artistic director of the company, asked for a show that could be performed annually over the Christmas season, as a revival of J.M. Barrie's play Peter Pan had previously been. Judge got the rights to the 1939 film. They put back an additional verse into the Academy Award-winning song, Over the Rainbow, as well as an entire number the jitterbug that was cut from the movie. Every word of the screenplay was left in, plus a few extra. This new version was also a success and has been revived many times since by both professional and amateur companies.
2: The new millennium also ushered in a new Oz stage show, which has introduced a new generation of fans to the land of Oz.
0: Wicked premiered on Broadway in 2003. The stage musical is told from the perspective of the witches of the land of Oz. Its plot begins before and continues after Dorothy Gale arrives in Oz from Kansas, and includes several references to the 1939 film and Baum's novel. Wicked, based on the book by Gregory Maguire, tells the story of two unlikely friends, Elphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West, and Galinda, whose name later changes to Glinda the Good Witch, who struggle through opposing personalities and viewpoints, rivalry over the same love interest, reactions to the Wizards' corrupt government, and ultimately, Elphaba's fall from grace. A London production of Wicked opened at the Apollo Victoria Theatre in September 2006. They tailored the production slightly for a British audience, including minor creative changes to dialogue, choreography and special effects. Most of these changes were later incorporated into all productions of Wicked, including the Broadway production. Wicked has broken box office records around the world, currently holding weekly takings records in Los Angeles, Chicago, St. Louis and London. In March 2016, Wicked surpassed a total of $1 billion on Broadway, joining both The Phantom of the Opera and The Lion King as the only Broadway shows to do so. A Universal Pictures film adaptation has been in development since 2004, with fans still eagerly awaiting news. Over 100 years since their author first set them down on paper, the magical stories of the Land of Oz and L. Frank Baum's quirky, iconic characters look set to continue to delight audiences well into the 21st century. Speaking of the RSC's 1987 stage adaptation, it just so happens that that's the version our guest Jackie Blackwood is currently working on as a production assistant. So
2: Jackie, we touched on this a little bit before um, in that you mentioned your role as a production assistant. To lots of people outside the theatre, that role isn't maybe completely clear in terms of what it is, so could you start by telling us a bit about what is a production assistant, what do they do, why are they so important?
5: The production assistant is the link, if you like, between the director and the cast and also between the director and the sections, whether that's lighting or sound or costume or props being the main ones, and also set design. So you are quite heavily involved in the actual overall production itself. Um, You are the go-to person for cast members, if you like, who might want to pass something on to the director or they're not sure about something. They'll come to you and say, could you just tell the director that I've got this problem or that, you know, whatever. Um, You are the person who will be checking up on uh, cast absences, making sure that cast members are members, uh, chasing people for front of house duties as part of what they've got to do. Then... Part of the role of the PA will also be, um, once you're in rehearsal, blocking the moves. So you're writing down the moves that um, a character does, where they move to, stage left, stage right, how they do, whether they've got a particular prop that they need to pick up, et cetera, put down. And it's trying as much as possible to keep on top of that, because if a cast member is absent for any reason, you might have to step in and, and read in during a rehearsal. <laughs> or ha- even
2: during a performance. Or even during a performance, which has
5: been known to happen, absolutely. Um, you're very much the director's right-hand person, if you like. Um, it's, some people think sometimes, oh, is, it, is it a personal assistant to the director? But it's not. It is actually a, a production assistant. So it is quite, and of, quite an important, it's not about making tea and cake for the no. director. It is very much about getting stuck in and getting involved as much as you can. The PA, or PAs, because we try and have more than one if we can on the production, should know the production inside out, really. Um, quite useful for things like tech when we're jumping from page to page. You can actually say to somebody, it's it's this or it's that. Um, in the days when we did use prompts, the PA would also be prompting in the wings, quite often helping with scene changes and or set changes and or um, costume changes when we get into production. Um, and it's really seeing the production through from the very start to the very end. So it's it is quite involved. Um, so you're be.
2: really the glue that holds the show together. Pretty much so,
5: yeah. I think so, pretty much so, yeah.
2: It's also a good experience for people who are maybe thinking about directing in absolutely. the
5: future. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a good way to start. Definitely a good way to start. So anybody who wants to PA, come on down. We'll show you how it's done.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And and what is it you love about it?
5: About pa Yeah. Yeah. Um, seeing the whole show come together. I mean, you can sit in a rehearsal and you can sometimes think, where on earth is the director going with this? It's This is just a bit... Um, mm. But then you see it, and it actually does work, you know, so you've got to have a bit of faith. Um, it's quite nice to be involved because you, you can pass on your ideas um, to the director after, you know, rehearsal. That went well, that didn't go well, why don't you try this, why don't you try that? It's finding the right time, it's knowing your place. It's not butting in and, and, and sort of cutting across the director when they're trying to direct, but it's thinking, must actually say afterwards, what, what about if we tried this, what about if we mm. tried that? Um, so it's, it's just nice to be involved in in that respect and seeing it all come together and it's quite a magic moment and I'm not fond of technical rehearsals but it is quite a magic moment when you do get to the technical rehearsal and you see the lighting and you see the costumes and then you start to understand how it is all coming together so in that respect it's it's quite nice it's just nice to see it through from, start, from start to finish yeah it's, it's kind of a and for most of the shows have been great I've loved it it's only been the odd one or two where I'm just thinking <laughs> I'm so glad when this is over um
2: we won't ask you which ones. No, don't no, don't. no, don't. No. So, from you know your multiple experiences, both on stage and um, as an assistant, what would you say are the challenges of producing a musical or a larger show, particularly of a fantasy story like The Wizard of Oz?
5: trying to coordinate both your director and your musical director Um, obviously if you've got children that's another challenge because you've got chaperones you've got to have people with DBSs. um, you have to uh, have the children licensed and for performances yeah got to make sure you've got enough people enough space it's rehearsal space it's a whole load of different things so it's not quite as straightforward as it would be Um, and obviously if you've got a big show with a big cast then that's obviously more difficult to sort of handle because you've got a lot of people that you've got to keep tabs on basically There's more cogs and aren't there Lots more cogs to, wheel, to the wheel yeah.
2: So as we've touched on already the show was actually in production before the Covid-19 pandemic in the early part of 2020 and was affected by national lockdowns, social distancing, theatre closures How has that affected your experience?
5: Um it's it's been very hard, actually, as it has been for everybody, I guess. Um, particularly, even at this point now, you know, you're just thinking, are we actually going to get this show on the road? Because you just don't you just don't know, do you? What, what's around the corner? Uh, typically, we've got we're down to 20 children in the production now. And we started with 30, but yeah. there are 10 now that can't do the dates, or for whatever reason, we've lost a couple of um, ensemble cast members that can't do the dates um but equally typically today we've got the children in for the very first time for just a couple of hours to do some singing and we've only actually got 10 children because 10 are either away on holiday or actually still isolating from their bubble at school so that's going to be that's going to be a continuous effect that I think we're going to have and the same with cast members um so that's that's a big challenge and that is a worry that because, I know I keep saying it, we don't know what's around the corner. You, you just yeah. think, how far are we going to get with this? Um, and it's not until September, so you're thinking there's a bit of time. Hopefully things will settle down. But that's the worry, I think, yeah. is how far we get and what we do if we get to that point where we can't do it. You
2: know. I mean, we've seen in recent weeks, at the time of recording this, that... Um, a number of professional productions having to be paused, paused. or postponed mm. or mm. even cancelled because um, people have either tested positive or they're or in close contact. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there any contingencies in
5: place? That is at the back of my mind all the time. What, what do we do? Because we don't, in amateur theatre, you tend not to have understudies. Of course. Um, so yeah. therefore, um, should we put some contingencies in place? I don't know. Maybe. Have you
2: learnt any of the parts? No. Just in case? You've got the blocking there?
5: Got the blocking. It's it just...
2: sort of stretches the, that maxim the show must go on. It feels Absolutely. like it's just stretched to the absolute, absolute limit the absolute at limits. the moment, yeah. doesn't
5: it? Yeah, I don't know how far we can take it, really. But you just got to be pragmatic about it, I think, and keep your fingers crossed.
2: So, as a PA, you deal with a lot of the practical aspects of the production um, and some of the logistics. Do you still get to enjoy the fantasy and excitement of a show like The Wizard of Oz?
5: Yes, actually, because um, at the moment we've got an absolute brilliant cast. Um, coming away from rehearsals on a real high, thinking, "Oh, this is just great." So yeah, you do get you do get to enjoy it. Uh, fortunately, mm-hmm. at the moment um, rehearsals are going very well. So despite absences, um, so yeah, so you do still get to enjoy it. And when it gets to the stage, you really do enjoy it. That, that's that's the magic moment. Quite often things like dance routines you'll see the crew in the wings will be will be dancing doing, doing the routines you know and joining in. Um,
2: so what do you think it is about The Wizard of Oz that's so appealing? We've been talking you know in this episode about the history and you know Laura's found out that actually the first stage production was in 1902 although it probably wouldn't have been very recognisable to um,
5: you day, in terms yeah.
2: of the show that you're yeah, working on. Yeah. What is it that you think you know, where does the appeal lie, and where does it lie for you?
5: I, it's got to be with the music, I think, really. Um, and it, it's quite a nice story. It's it's the four characters, isn't it? You know, going off with Dorothy, and the, the fact that you, you just see that lovely picture with them all, the, the four of them, sort of wandering off into into Oz. And I think it's the music that appeals, and that the Yellow Brick Road. And um who was it? it was somebody walked past the other day, uh, talking to her child, and she said as she was walking past. Because, 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 because I said so. Nothing to do with The divorce, but you hear that and you think, oh, yeah. that was a divorce moment. So, yeah, so, yeah. I think it's just the appeal. It's it's well known and people just love it. Um, you just follow the yellow brick road, it and I think we is. should have a yellow brick road it's, it's all little, around the theatre. A
2: little bit camp, maybe.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I don't
2: know if you noticed.
5: <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is actually that you mentioned it. Yeah. I don't think I've really thought about it like that, but yeah. A little bit.
2: There's something kind of kitsch about it, which, even though, I mean, I think you know, we all feel like we know the story, but somehow there's something charming about it yeah, at the same time. Yeah. And it's
5: a, it's a mixture because it's got a little bit of evil with the with the, the wicked witch, and then and then it all comes good in the end, doesn't it? And and you've got your wizard who, and the, I think the doubling of the characters is quite cleverly done. Yeah. If if theatres do that, so that that works really well. So that's, it's just that kind of it's a nice it's a nice story. Even if it it is camp. Well,
2: let's hope it gets on because you know it's got yeah. for me it's also got maybe some parallels with covid you've got the you know in in the original well it's not the original i should say in the <coughs> 1939 movie you know you've got the black and white and the sepia yeah. which is almost that kind of depression era feel and then you go to oz and it's in technicolor and it almost feels a bit like lockdown has been the sepia yeah, kansas sudden, world suddenly yeah and maybe we'll get to, we'll get to the, you yeah. know, yeah. Oh. go to Oz. Who knows? In the story, Dorothy famously says there's no place like home. What brings you back to amateur theatre time and again?
5: The people, the building, just the, the, the Crescent Theatre itself. Really, It's home from home, isn't it? For me anyway, yeah. And sometimes I do go home thinking, why am I doing this? But that doesn't happen very often. More often, it's you do come out thinking, yeah, that's been another good, another good rehearsal or another good, another good day in the theatre. Yeah. So yeah,
2: and I think in the theatre, well, all theatre, amateur theatre too, we kind of get to live in the present, which is something that increasingly in our life maybe we don't.
5: This is very true. Yeah, you're right.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think for me, that's been coming back to rehearsals, not for the Wizard of Oz, but, you know, for mm. other shows. Mm. It's been that feeling that you're actually present in the room with that people. And doing with something people, with people. And it's happening yes. now. It's not recorded. It's not on yeah, a device. Yeah, it's,
5: yes, it's not, uh, yeah, it's not online. It's actually real and it's real people. Yeah, very right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. very true.
2: Well, thank you ever so much for coming on, Jackie. It's thank been you. a pleasure, as always. Um, And we very much look forward to seeing The Wizard of Oz. Probably not seeing you. You'll be backstage frantically chasing children, chasing munchkins, chaperoning children. Uh, Who knows what else? Wrangling dogs. All in the life of
5: the PA. (laughs) Toto, we don't know just yet. We've got to find a Toto. We're still on the Toto hunt.
2: Brilliant. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. We found out earlier that the original stars of the 1902 stage production of The Wizard of Oz were actually the actors playing the Tin Man and the Scarecrow. We sent our backstage passholder, John, to speak to the actors playing these parts in the Crescent's forthcoming production and to find out how they were feeling about following in the footsteps of Fred Stone and David C. Montgomery.
3: Yes, here I am, sat in front of a modern-day casting of the Scarecrow and Tin Man. I'm joined by Luke Plimmer and Brandon Mears. Hi both. Hi, you alright? right? <laughs> Welcome onto our podcast. Can you each introduce yourself?
4: Well, as you just mentioned, um, with the Scarecrow and the Tin Man, I'm Luke. Obviously, I'm playing the Scarecrow. I am learning to cope with a lot of falling over. It's involving wearing a lot of knee pads, but I am thoroughly enjoying it so far.
3: <laughs> I'm Brandon Mears, and this is my first production at the Crescent Theatre, and I'll be playing the Tin Man. And um, I'm learning to cope with the dancing, I think. <laughs> My strong point? Yeah, a bit, but... With the choreography for the dancing, is is that difficult to learn all the different steps? It's about the right level of a challenge, I'd say. I'm, I'm not naturally a dancer, but um, the choreography is not too hard for it, it's just manageable. So... I feel like
4: I've got an advantage because if I get one of the dance moves wrong, my character, it's okay <laughs> to go wrong. I could just, oh, that was, that was the plan. That was what it was. He was deliberate. Cause Cause we yeah. haven't got to the jitterbug yet, though. So yeah, It could get, it could get yeah. more yeah.
3: difficult with talking yeah. about it. <laughs> right, so in this podcast episode, we're having a look at the wider Oz universe that sits beyond The Wizard of Oz. And it's this wider Oz Oz universe that inspired the stage play, which you're both involved in. To this end, I've got a little true or false quiz for you. Okay. (laughs)
4: Okay. Here we go.
3: (laughs) Right. So is what I am about to say a real title of a book, film or character from the Oz universe? Or is it fake? If it's real, you say Oz. Yeah. If it's fake, you say SOZ. Them. I'm keeping scores. It's best of three. So, this first one is to Luke, Okay. Tolly Diggle, the Jailer.
4: Ooh. Well, he's definitely not in The Wizard of Oz, I know that much. Um, I'm going to say Soz. <coughs> oh.
3: That one is Oz. Tolly Diggle appears in The Patchwork Girl of Oz Ooh. by Frank L. Borm. So that's a point. No, no, that's no point for you. That's a zero. No. Of course. <laughs> this one, Brandon, is okay. for you. The Lion of Oz. Oh, I'm pretty sure that was an Oz book title. I'm going to say Oz. <coughs> I'm afraid that's a Soz. That was completely made up by our wonderful podcast it's team. It's like a fix this so thing, isn't no, it? No, no, those like
4: crane <laughs> things you get at the fairground that never work. That's never a zero right
3: for both, both of you so far. Uh, Second question for you, Luke. Okay, here we go. TikTok of Oz. Oz. Correct. I've seen Return to Oz. That one is is real. One of the scariest
4: children films ever made, but I've seen it.
3: That's a story by Frank L. Bourne as well. Uh, Brandon, this is your second question. Gallop the pony. I'm going to say Oz again. I'm wrong. That's (laughs) That's completely wrong. British way to accept
4: defeat. I love it. So I do believe I got that wrong.
3: Luke, that puts you into a lead.
4: Okay. I hope no you pressure. can hold
3: on to it with this final question for you. Okay. This is the third and final one.
4: The red. The shoes are red. Oz. Let's oh. hope it's that.
3: <laughs> Polychrome, the rainbow's daughter, is that Oz or Soz?
4: See that sounds. Too out there to not be true. I'm going to go with Oz. Correct. Oh, yes. It's
3: real. Polychrome first appeared in the Road to Oz story by, you guessed it, Frank L. Bourne. I didn't know that. That's (laughs) another point for you, Luke. Brandon, this is your final question. Although technically you can't win now, but you can save face. (laughs) You ready? Okay. Is this Oz or Soz? The scala Wagons of Oz. Oh, that's so hard. I'm
5: going
3: to say Oz, but I think I'll be wrong. You're wrong. I'm, I'm afraid that's one. real. That one.
4: So, I mean, I had a fifty-fifty guess with, but no. I tell you what, I knew. I knew the TikTok one. Yeah. Not, not the app TikTok is in there's a character, but um, the second one was just. That a guess, one to be is honest, Oz.
3: So. so at least you're consistent, Brandon. You've got a straight zero on every question so far. That's a story by. Uh, Oz Illustrator, John R. Neal. No relation to me. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. So, Luke, you are the winner. You are the king of the Oz Universe yeah. knowledge trivia game. Well I'm done. loving this. Great. Luke, Brandon, thank you both very much. We look forward to seeing thank the you. finished you Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe by visiting www crescent theatre.co.uk forward slash podcast or via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher or Apple Podcasts to get the next episode. We're taking a short break in August after making our first two pilot episodes, so our next episode will be out on the first Friday of October.
2: You can find out more about the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and our upcoming productions, including The Wizard of Oz, by visiting www.crescent theatre.co.uk or by following us on social media. So, until the next time, thanks for listening.
0: Amateur of Life and Death is a Crescent Theatre production. It's presented by Laura East, Liz Plumpton and John O'Neill. The title music is by Brendan Stanley. The research is by John O'Neill and Laura East, and it's edited by Kevin Middleton.